0: on rthk
1: an international station for an international city this is radio three money talk good morning it is 803 in hong kong and i am andrew work and this is the one and only money talk Inflation numbers arrived in the United States, and they are ugly, with February inflation the highest in over 40 years. It isn't just gas at the pump, even if Biden is cleverly calling it the Putin price hike. The numbers are up across the board for consumer goods, food, and housing. J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs are leading investment banking out of Russia, and HSBC has announced it will wind down its Russian dealings. But Deutsche Bank has announced they will hold on, saying it is not, quote, practical to exit at this point. Canadian French fry Titan McCain's is also suspending shipment to Russia and is pulling out of a half-built factory there. Burger King is also Canadian-owned now and is suspending support to franchisees there. Russia is out, but Europe is in as Tesla gets some competition in Scandinavia. Chinese electric vehicle maker Xpeng is bringing its P5 sedan to northern climes. It will be a less sophisticated version with self-driving features and LiDAR stripped out. ByteDance Tower, the company's global HQ, Uh, In Shanghai is under lockdown with COVID fears. Locking people in office towers for days is a thing in China. Apparently, uh, 16 Shanghai districts are currently under lockdown. Locally, Swire announced results and is back in the black after a loss making 2020. Coca-Cola is up and Cafe Pacific is hurting less. And full props to landlord Hong Kong Land, who are waiving rents for tenants who are forced to close due to COVID outbreaks, and they are reducing rents for some of their F&B tenants. In completely different news, Lululemon founder Chip Wilson has committed $100 million to a new venture he is founding to deliver a cure for a rare form of muscular dystrophy. Why? He revealed this week that he has suffered from this disease and hid the fact for over 35 years. Part of the commitment is a $30 million prize for a cure. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Martin Henneke, Head of Asia Investment Advisory and Communications at St. James Place Wealth Management, and it's a double shot of Andrew, as Andrew Freres, Chief Strategist at the UCAP HK Asset Management, is on the show. Later, we'll check in with our Asian rival, Singapore. Jeff Howey, Market Strategist of Singapore Exchange, will give us a Money Talk style view from Singapore. So saddle up and get ready to ride. This is Money Talk
2: Money
1: Talk on Radio Hey, Money Talkers, it's time for your daily diet of market updates. Let's go. Americans were in the dumps yesterday with the Dow Jones dropping 150 points, the S&P shedding 0.4% and NASDAQ dropping 0.8% with Apple and Meta, aka Facebook, leading the downward trend with Microsoft, Tesla and Zoom joining the droopy dance. Silver linings, Amazon's big buyback we announced on the show yesterday, saw them up 5% at the close of trading. Cloud computing specialist CrowdStrike was the star performer of the day, up 14% after beating earnings expectations. The TSX was also down a tiny bit, although commodity stocks finally showed their strength, blunting the downward pressure. Looking at Europe, the ECB opted to keep interest rates steady, but did announce it will wind down asset purchases, with bond buying probably ending in Q3. Auto stocks gave up some of the gains from Wednesday to help the stock's index to drop 1.8% yesterday. That cooled things off after a super hot Wednesday. We saw the FTSE drop 1.3%, the DAX and CAC were both down almost 3% and the Italian FTSE was down more than 4%. Asia followed in the wake of Wednesday's good news as the Nikkei picked up almost 4% and the Chinese Bourses were all up more than a percentage point. The KOSPI was up 2.2% in hopes of market-friendly reforms coming from the new president's administration and oil prices dropping. You can hit the Money Talk archives for yesterday's view from Korea on why the new president may be good for the economy. He says he's a free market kind of guy. Time will tell. Oil continues to slide with Brent crude oil down to $109 and change. Natural gas picked up 2.4% and there was more driver's delight as the RBOB dropped 4.2%. Metals continued to cease up and down, up Tuesday, down Wednesday, and up again yesterday with gold percentage up, silver up 2%, and copper up 1.6%. P&P, platinum and palladium, were the losers yesterday, dropping 2% and not 0.6% respectively. Uh, The U.S. 10-year treasury bond yields, and everybody else's for that matter, are up on the 24-hour cycle. The U.S. dollar picked up against European counterparts, while the Canadian loony gained some ground on the U.S. dollar. The scene was similar in Asia with the US dollar gaining against most Asian currencies, but with mighty Australia and New Zealand bucking the trend. Bitcoin gave up Wednesday's big gains to fall under $40,000. Ethereum was also down almost 3%, while Terra Luna continued its week-long rise up 1.7%. This puts it in the number 6 spot on the coin market cap market cap leaderboard. Stablecoin Tether is number 3 on that ranking, right behind Bitcoin and Ethereum, although its trading volume is double that. Of Bitcoin. Uh, We're going to be looking at the markets around Asia a little bit later, but Hong Kong's Hang Seng Futures Index is showing danger signs red. So down 2%, so tread lightly out there, and those are your markets. All right, I'm Andrew Work, and we're back at Money Talk. And this has maybe been the craziest week that I have been hosting this show, I'm standing in for Peter Lewis. He'll be back on Monday. Uh, and we're glad that we're going to close it out with Martin Henneke, Head of Asia Investment Advisory and Communications at St. James Place Wealth Management. G- good morning, Martin.
2: Good morning, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having
1: me on. You betcha. And also, uh, we welcome Andrew Ferris, Chief Strategist at UCAP HK Asset Management. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Uh, Gentlemen, what a week it has been. Uh, So many stories to hit, but I think we probably want to kick off with inflation with the numbers coming out of the United States. Uh, Quite shocking, really. Uh, Give me your take on on what is happening there and give us something beyond the headlines. Andrew, do you want to kick off?
3: Yeah, actually, I must admit there is a, a complete hysteria in the media concerning the role of oil in inflation in general and in economies in particular. Not because... It doesn't matter because it does. But when one begins to look at the at the quant part, begins to you know, take a scalpel, uh, not behind the numbers, behind the CPI indexes, <coughs> it's a slightly different story. <coughs> In the case of U.S., the seven point five percent on the CPI, which is the headline index, now. Take out food, fuel, all the other, uh, they call them variables or volatiles, and you get a 6.4% inflation. 6.4% inflation. So let's not blame poor oil on anything, because if you take out all the volatility, you still have a whacking great big inflation, which means that I'm not saying there is no inflation and we shouldn't be concerned. But when we begin to look very carefully at what actually is causing it, it's not necessarily oil. You know, what's the percentage of oil in the American CPI? It is less than 1% in the wage. Okay. So there are quite a lot of other things that are, that, are, that are hit in inflation and not just oil.
1: So are you saying that maybe it's it's not as high as it looks? But I mean, 6% is still pretty high and it but is no, structural. It's, it's,
3: it's, exactly. Hang on a minute. And then you're telling me, Andrew, shall we talk about oil and inflation or shall we talk about inflation?
2: I will tell you, let's talk about inflation.
1: Mm, okay. <laughs> Mart, well, good point. Martin.
2: Yeah, basically, I I agree that it seems to be more widespread, and it's not just only limited um, to oil. But I would like to go back one step on this inflation question briefly, because I think it's an absolutely crucial one that everybody is asking about now. So firstly, coming back to this whole transitory discussion, I don't really believe it. You had actually uh, Alan Greenspan before the COVID crisis. In February 2020, warning, and i give you a quick quote here, unless we bring those extraordinary budget deficits under control, history tells us this is going to be a much more rapid rate of price increases than we have seen. Uh, budget deficits were the 1 trillion level at that time. They then went to about 3 trillion for two, for two years. This year it's going to be above 1 trillion. Um, again, at the same time, you know th- well, this is obviously something not related to to COVID. At the same time, you have China uh, turning into an exporter of inflation from decades of exporting um, deflation because of the peaking population and the focus on quality. And then, of course, um, you know you have you have COVID, and then uh, Russia on top of it all. And I think central banks may be much less powerful to do anything about it because we also have this record debt levels in many countries, and you've just seen that yesterday, the ECB having to make some sort of stronger statement because of these record inflation numbers, but then at the same time you saw Italian bond years basically surging uh, or rising immediately, not yet surging, but that could happen quite easily. So I think a lot of central banks are quite stuck and may have much, much less room to address the inflation problem
1: and maneuver than people might think. Mm. I mean, I, I lean heavily towards the Austrian school of economics, but nobody wanted to hear from from those guys <laughs> over the past couple of years. It was just government spend money, worry about it later. Uh, so you, you're saying maybe maybe the war oil prices are camouflage for what is really happening? Is, is and is it this this government spending that's finally having its impact?
3: May I interject here? Actually, sure. the discussion is so eurocentric Eurocentric lesson with the European Union. Let's take the four biggest economies in the world. Okay, United States, inflation, a major problem. European Union, inflation is a major problem. China, a major problem. You know what's the rate of inflation in China right now? And going down 0.9%. Not even 1%, let alone Japan, okay, which let's say uh, is in in position being the third or the fourth biggest inflation in the world, okay, and the rate of inflation in Japan is coming down at half a percent point. So even the the obsession that inflation is a global problem, okay, simply means inflation is a huge problem for the United States and uh, a growing problem for the European Union. But please, you know, include me out when you come to the other half of the world, which is Japan and China.
1: Yeah, i mean andrew uh, this this is starting to sound a little bit like 2008 where uh, i remember david o'rear who used to be here the chief economist for the general chamber before he left he always called it the atlantic financial crisis not the global financial absolutely crisis. absolutely <clears throat> i
3: mean I'll, I'll take that even further whenever i'm being asked about the asian financial crisis back in there in the uh oh, it was late uh, 1880s okay i say sorry sorry include me out there was a global financial crisis. But well, there was no financial crisis in Asia except South Korea. Thank you. Oh, and Indonesia.
1: Yeah. Mm, okay. Okay. Sorry. And, and of course, during that time, Australia and Canada were were riding high on a commodity boom. Yeah. So, I mean, are we are we in for a replay of that? Well, I
3: mean, it's not a matter of being a replay, neither a matter of being clever. But whenever I hear, you know, there is a global crisis, I say, sorry, it's an American crisis. And please don't automatically assume that because it happens in the States, it's bad for everybody else.
1: OK, um, so where where's the upside for China? Because people have been talking China down a little bit lately. Uh, where, where are you? It sounds like you think there might be some upside there.
3: The upside in China is the other huge lie of the century, and that is China is an export-driven economy. It ain't. It is an economy which is driven primarily by consumption and investment. And on average, okay, net export growth adds about 10 basis points for every 100 basis points of GDP growth in China. So in other words, China may very well bring the status down. Oh, GDP growth is not going to be at 6%. But China doesn't really, really hugely depend on exports for its GDP growth. And that is the important part. Also, people tend to immediately forget. They say, well, China is a major exporter. Sorry, China also is a major importer. This is always forgotten. Okay.
1: Yeah, and uh, I mean, we talk about importing uh, energy in particular, but I mean, we don't really have a clear picture on how oil is going to impact on China's.
3: Well, uh, you know, there is a a tiny little problem in China, and that is the components of the CPI. We have no idea in detail about the weights. Okay, for example, we don't know what's the real, real weight of uh, energy in the CPI of China. Bloomberg calculates it at 2.3%, and that is energy, not just oil. Okay?
1: Okay. Martin, uh, so if we're, we're from what I'm hearing from you guys, if, if Europe and the United States are, are facing some headwinds now, should people be rebalancing their portfolios towards Asia, maybe?
0: Well, I definitely think you know one should be globally diversified and, and
2: definitely not overlook China. I agree that there's some you know figures in China that actually look um, you know better. Uh, than than in in Europe and the US, Um Andrew just mentioned the CPI is actually quite low. I mean, I still think that it's also increasingly it's going to be a challenge in China, nonetheless. But it's lower. But it's like, if you look at the PPI, the producer price index, which is the leading indicator. Uh, It was reported yesterday in Italy it was actually 41.86% jump. Partly that's related to energy, though. In China, again, much lower, but it was 8.8%. So I think, plus, you know, if you add the Russia challenges, so there's still this question mark on inflation there. But overall, um, the production picture in in China is relatively strong. The the trade picture in the first two months still is quite strong. Um, Then you have the valuation levels, which are clearly lower than the global average and you have to focus on stability and actually easing um, uh, uh, of interest rates after you know the poor um, performance last year so i definitely recommend investors not to fall into this recency bias trap of assuming that you know given that last year was very bad let that's going to continue but but really and stay open-minded for opportunities uh, in China based on those fundamentals as well as the evaluation factors.
1: Okay, Andrew Ferris, you're you're the chief strategist over there. Where is your strategy uh, antenna pointing now?
3: Well, actually, my strategy antenna has been pointing uh, uh, mostly in Asia. And uh, I was uh, selectively bullish on South Korea because the KOSPI was uh, doing relatively well. But the little jewel, okay, which again very quietly has been lost out, is Taiwan. Taiwan has got one of the lowest uh, negatives in Asia. Actually, just glancing through, uh, possibly it is the second lowest. In other words, it's not doing as badly as everybody else is doing. And of course, what is happening in Ukraine, and I have to be incredibly careful here, but very careful here, is is quite bullish for the future of Taiwan, because clearly China will have to reconsider its overall overall position towards uh, Taiwan. And uh, uh, let's say the strategic issues as where we're going in the future. In other words, it is a very, very tricky situation, and we have seen that uh, China has been backpedaling furiously of its support in, uh, in Russia, even to the extent of offering its services as a, as a mediator. And all this, anything that potentially leaves pressure off Taiwan is always quite bullish going forward, not that Ti- the uh, uh, Taiwanese stock market was ever hugely influenced by what was happening, by the ups and downs in the relationship. Incidentally, if I was to take out all the dates and look only at the Taiwanese stock exchange index, it would have been almost impossible to tell you, yes, there was a crisis here, yes, there were a lot of uh, violations of the airspace here, and so on. The markets tended, The market in Taiwan simply tended to ignore it. Mm. So I don't want to say what's happening in Ukraine is bullish for Taiwan, because that's a very cruel thing to say at the time that people are dying. But the truth is, politically speaking, okay, uh, it is something that perhaps will recalibrate overall the position between uh, China and Taiwan.
1: Okay, eyes on Taiwan. Martin, to close us out, have you got a, an, un, an overlooked gem uh, that we should be keeping yeah, an eye on? Yeah, I
2: just say maybe one, one general word of Wisdom, perhaps, because many clients are asking what to make of all of this. I just have two words of advice. Number one, because there are so many uncertainties, I think it's safer to avoid leverage and be overly aggressive or overly um, focused on any one market or sector. So diversify and ideally avoid leverage to be on the safe side against the backdrop of these uncertainties. The second point is um, be conscious as well, though, that Uh, holding, say, everything in cash as a result of fear also has got massive risk nowadays because of these negative real interest rates, you know, 7.9 CPI in the U.S., and what's the rate on cash that you're getting? So there's really this uh, significant and rising risk of going backwards um, when when not holding any inflation-proof type of uh, asset. So it's important to strike the balance um, between those two at those
1: times. Okay, you talk about holding your cash. I guess if you're Putin, you've got to think about where you keep your cash because uh, that's turned into a big problem for him. But fortunately, fewer problems for people listening to Money Talk because we've got great guests on today giving us with wisdom. Thank you to Martin Henicky Head of Asia Investment Advisory and Communications at St. James Place Wealth Management, and Andrew Ferris, Chief Strategist at UCAP HK Asset Management. Thank you, gentlemen. This is Money Talk. On and we're back and now we are going to turn our eyes down to singapore we've got jeff howie the market strategist with the singapore exchange on the line good morning jeff
4: good morning andrew
1: hey good morning okay um you know the talk in Hong Kong these days. Everyone's like, "When are you leaving for Singapore? Uh, is it really, is it really as great as everybody's making out?" What is happening down, uh, down in Singapore right now in terms of what's going on with the economy?
4: Yeah, uh, look, we, we've got plenty going on. Really, uh, very diversified, regional focused economy, particularly across Southeast Asia. At the moment, Southeast Asia is uh, probably the most defensive aspect of the global stock market and uh and look we we've got so much going on with obviously the impact of energy prices and supply chain pressures that are really putting this 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 inflationary pressure on the economy but at the same time continuing to gradually open so gradually open so uh yeah it's 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 uh it's it's very much open for business um you know the uh, you mentioned that about uh, you know, people are asking when they're going to move here and so forth. I think, um, you know, there's always been the reputation that uh, we do welcome foreign professionals. I'm one, foreign workers and so forth to complement the local workforce. But, you know, it was announced in the budget just uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, that work, a foreign worker policy is actually being, I guess, a little bit more calibrated to ensure that the foreign workers are coming into the areas where they're needed and those key industries that are earmarked for growth so uh you know it includes green finance carbon services agritech and so forth and one big one is is clearly digitalization and that's a that's a that's a big theme for not just singapore but across the southeast asian region over the next few years yeah. but i haven't got i haven't got any course i i went to high school in hong kong my brother-in-law is, is up there and he's involved in a Start up in the transportation sector at the moment there I have a lot of high school friends but no one's called me yet to tell me they're moving I think I have had enough friends too, so. yeah I, um, think, I think some yeah, of it is, ha-
1: yeah I think some of it is temporary but I mean um uh, you know first of all how hard how hard is it to get a visa and second I think a lot of these people think they're going to fly down and just stick around for a few months and you know re- work remotely but is, is that feasible or are the authorities on the lookout for that yeah, well, would then- they would they consider that uh illegitimate work. Well
4: then that's very different. That's very different back to 2009 when you had that big global financial crisis back in 2008 and you had a lot of financial services which is really big for obviously Singapore and Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. You had a lot of uh, international banks looking to really uh, streamline their operational efficiencies and move people back to and fro. There was a lot of that in 2009 um, and That was more of a, obviously, a sector-driven, business-driven decision. And and at the end of the day, where you go is where your customers are. And obviously, Hong Kong is still a very important part of the world for for where its customers are. But I'll tell you that... If you're the, the, you asking about those visa, that specific question, um, so there's a little change that comes into effect in September this year. That uh, for the, if you want to be on an employment pass, uh, you have to have a, a minimum salary, I think, of five thousand dollars. And if it's in financial services, you have to have that at five thousand five hundred dollars, and that's per month.
1: Five thousand five hundred sing dollars a month. Yeah,
4: if, okay. you, if you're in financial services, uh, if you're in oh, media, just... like I you know you are, yeah, it's, it's,
1: it's, sure. it's, it's it'll be five thousand. Yeah. Uh, okay, got it. So so you can kind of rock up and they'll pretend you're a tourist and say, well, you know, they'll be like... You, you know what I mean? No, this, if you're just going to work, you know, if your clients aren't necessarily there, you don't really have any business in Singapore, you just want to hang out there while you're working remotely. You can kind of make it work, Airbnb. Mate, we've,
4: we've, we've, all, all the big, all the big uh, Hong Kong restaurants, we, all the Chinese, we've got some here as well, can come and visit as well.
1: <laughs> okay. So that's, that's okay. Uh, how about in the tourism? Lots, uh, lots of yum cha. Lots of <laughs> yum cha. So, so since uh, we're using me as an example, I've got to plan a plan of regional uh, event every year, and it's been on hold for a couple of years, and we're, we're trying to thinking about getting it back in action. Is the mice sector picking up? Uh, I know Dubai's been a real hotspot for events, but is Singapore going to pick up on some Asian regional mice business?
4: Gradually. Uh, I mean, the, the, the travel restrictions and the sluggish global travel, it's, it's, it's devastated that particular sector not just here but across across the world um but it's it's still safety first and I think um policies you know that it comes to down to three things with with COVID it's uh as we have the new variants you assess the transmissibility the severity and how you know effective the vaccines are but the VTLs they are continuing to gradually build which is an important part of that Um, in the fourth quarter of last year our transportation sector. It actually grew 8% year on year. I think Singapore Airlines also reported its first quarterly profit since COVID-19 took effect back in that last quarter. But it's still a little bit uneven, so accommodation is still declining. I think it was down uh, 6% year on year in the third quarter last year, down another 5% in the fourth quarter.
0: Mm. For the mice
4: events um, and the weddings, we, had seen, we have seen an emerging recovery at the back end of last year. SunTech REIT, uh, it owns two-thirds of the SunTech uh, Singapore Convention and Exhibition Centre that has some forty two thousand square meters of MySpace. and it noted uh, only a few weeks ago that the recovery of the convention business it's going to it will continue but there's still that weak international business leisure travel um, so for for its income at the moment much of it is coming from the domestic market that's been the key revenue driver for. Um, until we have the further easing on the big, large-scale corporate events. But I can tell you, too, of all the 150 REITs listed across Asia-Pacific that do have a market value of half a billion US dollars, Suntech REIT has actually been the, the strongest performer. So I think the the bigger overarching driver, Andrew, is, is really that number of cases. Um, and why it's uh, globally, it's less than... Uh, half of where it was at the end of January, it has of course ticked up in recent days, not just in Hong Kong with way five, which we 're all watching, but also across the world from UK to Germany to New Zealand and so forth. so, so thats I think that's the bigger overarching indicator that we 're watching at the moment
1: okay uh, i'm going to use your your mention of the Suntech REIT to pivot uh, a little bit there. Uh, you know Singapore is the reIT king of Asia. what what is happening in the REIT sector right now? How are those performing?
4: It it has has been performing uh, not so well in the beginning of the year because of the the, uh, really the cause and the effect of the current wave of inflation. So what's driven the inflation is the higher energy prices and, of course, the the supply chain pressures. And as an effect of that, the outlook for uh, U.S. interest rates and higher borrowing costs have weighed REITs globally. So um, you really REITs uh, and technology stocks because of, the cause one of the causes of inflation and the supply chain pressures had actually been um, the weakest sectors up until the Ukraine crisis and then airline stocks have kind of taken over as the as the more heavier hit uh, but uh, it, one, one thing I will mention it is very much a global hub here for the REITs, so they're not mm-hmm. just Singapore focused they're very globally focused and what we saw last year was a lot of REITs really imp- really looking to Take some micro initiatives uh, amidst all the macro headwinds and tailwinds, I guess, to an extent. But there was about uh, 20 or so of the 40 REITs that uh, basically made acquisitions, new deals, uh, acquired new real estate, and the deal value of that was uh, was something like 12 billion, more than 12 billion Singapore dollars. So, so they have been uh, effectively growing and looking to uh, increase their portfolios making yield accretive acquisitions as as the yields are very important
1: to the REIT sector. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. Uh, You know, part of my my day job is in uh, the self-storage industry and your point about the global nature of the REITs in Singapore is taken. The only self-storage REIT listed in Asia is listed in Singapore and it's for a company that owns uh, self-storage in Connecticut in the United States. Go figure. So, there you (laughs) go. Hey, Jeff Howie, market strategist at the Singapore Exchange, I really want to thank you for coming on the show today and uh, telling us what's going on in Singapore. Thanks again. Absolutely. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Okay, we're closing out Money Talk for today with a bit of a market update. It's not looking great out there. The Nikkei, Kospi, and the Australian Stock Exchange are all down, and we told you the Hang Seng Futures Index was looking not great. Fortunately, the weather is in our favor, mainly dry. The temperature now is 21 degrees Celsius. The weekend is looking good. Uh, maximum temperature today, 26 degrees. And as I said, current temperature is 21 degrees Celsius. It is 75%. Stay tuned after the news for our COVID update with Janice Wong who will, at 9 o'clock, and then we'll have back chat talking about the COVID plague in nursing homes with the roguishly handsome, straight-jawed, steely, blue-eyed Andrew Work. It's radio so I can look like whatever I want. And that is Money Talk. The time is 8.31, and now the news with Andrew Trosky.
0: Health officials say people should not let their guard down despite recent signs of a plateauing in the number of new COVID cases. The authorities reported 31,000 COVID infections yesterday, comprising 24,000 confirmed using PCR tests and 7,000 from self-reported rapid tests. A further 281 deaths were recorded. Dr. Albert Au is from the Center for Health Protection. Probably we have already reached the peak, but we still need to
2: observe and we advise the citizens and all the general public to remain vigilant because uh, the number of cases still remain at a quite high level, although the trend is, has stabilized with a, a toll And we hope that with further uh, enhancement of the testing as well as the social distancing measures, we can further cut the transmission chain in the community and we hope that there will be a decrease in the near future.
0: Overseas, charities are warning of appalling conditions in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol, which is besieged by Russian troops. The International Red Cross says many people have run out of food and water and freezing temperatures, with some residents resorting to fighting each other for supplies. Yaroslav Zelesnyak is a Ukrainian MP. He said the number of civilians killed in Mariupol had risen to 1,300. The figure hasn't been independently verified. Mr. Zelezniak painted a grim picture of the conditions in the city.
3: Uh, Mariupol it is one of the biggest cities in Ukraine. There is a lot of industrial plants. There is a port a railway infrastructure. It's very important for them to be uh, to occupy it. Mariupol is a very nice city. Now my city has been for two weeks destroyed. Yesterday and today there was massive graves in 2022. 40 people have been burnt without any names, without any monuments. And that's why I don't understand the position of the NATO and the Western country. If you are for democratic principles and democratic aims, why should you not should close our sky?
0: European Union leaders are meeting just outside Paris to discuss introducing tougher sanctions on Russia. They're addressing further ways of stopping the EU's reliance on Russian food and energy supplies as well as boosting defense capabilities. The French president, Emmanuel Macron, said the ceasefire wasn't yet in sight.
1: The facts are the following. Russia
0: decided to launch a war. Russia is bombing Ukraine. Russia is bombing even civilians. And in parallel, you have a negotiation, but this negotiation is not ready to be concluded. So I don't see the ceasefire realistic in the coming hours, to be honest with you. The German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, said the EU still needed to do everything possible to convince the Kremlin to end the war. That's the news from RTHK.
1: Good morning and welcome to COVID Update, I'm Janice Wong. On today's program, we will get expert analysis on the current COVID wave by Dr. Karen Brepin, an associate professor of the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health and we will also look at traditional chinese medicine as a cure for covid you may have heard about it but how much do you know we'll be speaking to professor bian jiaoshang an associate vice president for chinese medicine development at the un- at the university at the baptist university